Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. From Variety, celebrating more than 117 years covering the business of entertainment, this is the Award Circuit Podcast. You're not going to believe me. You're going to think this is total BS, but I have not watched Maisel. The only episodes I've seen are the pilot and the second. And that's because we went to Berlin for a world premiere and we were stuck in the theater when they screened it. And I couldn't get out and had to. And it was not good for me to watch. Ever since I saw that first episode, I started changing the way I stood. Like anything observed is changed. And that holds true for me. I had to not watch the show. Otherwise, I would screw everything up. The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel star Alex Borstein has won multiple Emmys for playing Susie Meyerson on the series. But she's waiting for the show to end before she finally watches it for the first time with her 10-year-old daughter. I'm Michael Schneider, and on this episode of the award-winning Variety Awards Circuit Podcast, we talk to The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel star Alex Borstein about the final season of that landmark Amazon Prime video comedy as well as her latest stand-up special and her ongoing part of the Family Guy universe. But first, on the Award Circuit Roundtable, we check in on all the award show postponements and cancellations, including the Daytime Emmys and Peabody Awards, and get the skinny straight from Cannes. It's all next on this edition of the Variety Award Circuit Podcast. Stay close. Why, hello, everyone. It is a global edition of the Award Circuit Podcast. I'm TV editor Michael Schneider, and sitting across from me is our artisan's guru, Jazz Tanke. Well, hey. And then halfway around the world, where it's the middle of the night, and he's eating a baguette with Clayton Davis. <laughs> You're literally eating a baguette. You've been in... It was the, fir- it was the first thing I grabbed when I got, when I got into can. I oh went, my god! I, I grabbed a baguette, <laughs> as as any good uh, 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 French visitor would do. Isn't it ridiculously cheap, though? I mean, I don't know. I, I have no idea how much I paid for any of this. Well, I know they charged me hundreds of dollars. I'm not even looking at prices anymore. <laughs> I got it from the grocery <laughs> store. <laughs> so how was how was the trip? Um, it, it, it's long, and I do feel a little jet lagged. Which I wasn't as much last year. I stayed up for a bit before I got on the plane. Um, so I was really tired to get on the plane. So I slept a bunch on the plane. And it was uh, five hours to Newark and then eight hours to Nice. And I'm just, I've been struggling all day. <laughs> like, it's hard. I got here. I landed like 1045 a.m. Like, can time. And we are talking now. It's 930 p.m. And I was just trying to stay up until like nine o'clock for us to do this so i can try to not be uh thrown off by everything you're you're a trooper clayton davis you are a trooper. you're gonna need some sleep because saturday isn't saturday the heavy lifting of like the scorsese saturday is uh his his big day that's uh scorsese uh his movie at seven the killers of flower moon and then followed immediately by may december todd haynes's movie 
And tomorrow I have Pedro Moldovar's short uh, with Pedro Pascal and uh, Kareda's uh, new film, Monster. So it's going to be busy every day. But uh, I can't complain. I've been told I cannot complain about no. can ever, no. ever. No. no, because you're eating a baguette in, in can. So, and we are hungry here in the podcast studio at PMC Central. In, in LA, LA, where it's drizzling, <laughs> I think. Oh God! Is it new? Is it twelve thirty there? Yeah. Yeah. Fine. We can do math. Look at us. <laughs> We're nouveau journalists. You like how I use nouveau? I love it. No. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just him. <laughs> <laughs> so I think we talked about this last week, or I forget when, because all the days and weeks are coming together. But explain to me again. Cannes is a festival, and it says very clearly in the WGA strike rules that festivals are no-go, just as FYC events are no-go for striking writers. So explain to me how there are striking writers attending the Cannes Film Festival. Oh, you're asking me? I have no idea. I don't know what loopholes they found. Because, listen, everything that you think Cannes wouldn't or shouldn't do ends up happening just as, like... you Would you just, say <laughs> can do? <laughs> they can do. Things. Oh my gosh! <laughs> I mean, even like I don't know if you guys have, have saw. You know, because we're really up to the minute here. But like Brie Larson, like was asked by about um, you know Johnny Depp's film, and like acted like it was a question out of nowhere. She was, I don't know why you would ask me about why I would be watching his movie here. And she's on the jury, and we know how she sat on the board of Time's Up and how vocal she was about Casey Affleck. And uh, some people are just acting like, you know, things aren't happening outside of this little bubble. Yeah, I was going to say, is it? it's sort of like what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. What happens in Cannes <laughs> stays in Cannes. Like, suddenly it's like this unique jurisdiction where anything goes. Because, yeah, that or, was bizarre. Or interesting, whatever... Whatever happens in Cannes, it doesn't matter what's happening outside of Cannes. That's probably the better saying. Yes. Things are happening, but also I think something else is happening. Right, Mike? Yeah. So breaking news as we're recording this, uh, the daytime Emmys postponed uh, until a later date. Basically, they've punted it to to say uh, after the strike is resolved, of course, as we know, (laughs) we have no idea when that may be. So, you know, you could potentially have the daytime Emmys happening right around the same time the primetime Emmys happen if if this is resolved by September. Who, if. How, how are they going to divvy up the stars? <laughs> <laughs> Who's going to go to what? I don't know. But, yeah, it, it clearly they had to do it because, you know, what's interesting about the daytime Emmys is as uh, things have moved around, you know, kids uh, programming has moved to the kids and family Emmys. Game shows are now in prime time. They, they've really downsized what is awarded uh, during the daytime Emmys. So, so really, it's it's down to soaps, which, as we know, are all written WGA uh, talk shows, most of, most of which are WGA, um, with the exception of The View which because I guess it's a news program uh, that's sort of oh. how they're able to to do that. Um, uh, so talk and then court, which we know is just ridiculous. Uh, it's definitely know. scripted. <laughs> definitely <laughs> unscripted. But nonetheless, uh, you take two of those out and you don't have a show. 
So, and there's no way talent was going to show up, et cetera. So they had to, to postpone this. Um, just as interestingly, the Peabody Awards also postponed. Uh, was curious if they, we haven't had a chance to talk to them yet, if, if they asked for a waiver or not, or if they just thought, uh, you know, optics wise, it made sense to, to postpone that. Uh, because then you have the Tonys, which is an interesting case. Oh, so can we can we talk about the Tonys here? Yeah. Uh, the, so the Tonys applied for a waiver initially. Uh, this type of recording because everything's breaking up until the second, right? So they asked for a waiver, initially denied. They appealed it. And now I think they're going forward in some version of it. Yeah, it sounds like they had uh, conversations, the WGA and the Tonys, and uh, they they had an agreement that, uh, you know, as long as they didn't use the, uh, this is what I understand, as long as they didn't use the script that had already been pre-written and that there isn't a scripted element uh, that the WGA agreed that they wouldn't strike it, uh, sort of in deference to the fact that Broadway has had its own struggles and uh, is is aiming to recover. So I'm guessing what the show will be will basically be performances and then handing out awards, which, you know, that's fine. Sure. I think the first time I think in this process where I looked at the WGA and I said, guys, like, I think, I think we overstepped a little too much in this, in this uh, realm. And that's because and I get that the Tony's, the show is what, you know, a show and with writers and so forth, but Broadway is on life support, like dying in front of us like in real time and i feel like this is the one thing where you just say let them i mean in my opinion i think you let them happen in hopes that the tonys will be here <laughs> another year next year so jazz i know you've been moderating a few things yes. uh and i have too it's definitely a different world now to be moderating at this moment partly because we don't have the the writers who are key in most of these cases to talk <laughs> about these shows uh and and you know shout out to the cast members uh but you know they they don't necessarily have the answer all the answers they can talk about their own characters and their own experiences but it is a different experience what's it been like for you well at the time of recording last night, I recorded, I moderated the George and Tammy panel, FYC, at the Paramount space. Jessica Chastain flew in from New York, taking a break from a doll's house. She flew in on Sunday and was leaving, like, directly after. But the way that panel was shaped is it was with the costume designer, the production designer, and the music supervisors. So there were no writers. So she could talk about how they helped build the world of Tammy Faye and George without the writer present. So I think having the artisans brings in like a different angle of like how she, you know, in, that, in this case, like how she was able to step into this role through hair, makeup, costume. Yeah. And obviously sing, cause she sings like 24 songs in this six part series. So, you know, but even then it was like, is she still, is she, is she still going to show up? And you never know, like, cause I had a press junket the other day and the writer didn't show up. Yeah. It's, it's tricky. And it's like a lot of last minute cancellations. Exactly. So we've got to be like on our toes prepared to sh switch and, sh you know, change the last minute. Yeah. 
Yeah. So right. it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's exciting. It's different. <laughs> it's different. Um, but so far, you know, F- FYC is, is continuing as a result. It's just, uh, you know, definitely some, some pivots and you've seen it with some, you know, networks and studios and, and streamers the, more than others. Uh, some folks are just switching to screening episodes and then having yeah. a reception after without any panel. And they're still getting a good turnout. Right. People still like their free food. They so love their food. There's definitely free food, free <laughs> stuff. Yeah. Um. I, actually, and um, uh, Mike and I went to a um, Paramount FYC house, and or where George and Tammy uh, set was there as well. They had a recording booth. Mike and I are dropping a great album by the end of 2023. Exactly. It's, it's they're ready for it. It slaps. It's last. it's last. Now you're going I'm for the slaps. Grammy. Now you're going for a Grammy award. Okay. I mean, we're just we're we're just going for as much of it as possible. But we got. It, it's it's interesting to now see the kind of landscape in this uh, post WGA strike era because it sounds like, correct me if I'm wrong, DGA talks are moving along accordingly. I mean, that's based on some of the last reporting. I don't think it's like, I don't I'm not saying it's a done deal, but it sounds like it's moving as opposed to like WGA, which was like just not. It's hard to say right now because, you know, in the weeks leading up to the uh, expiration of the deal with the, the AMPTP and the WGA, it was looking pretty promising. It seemed like things were moving along until it wasn't. So. Mm-hmm. It it's uh, I've I've kind of given up guesstimating until we actually see what happens. But Has, what's not something the DJ has gone on strike? Has it ever happened? Um, that's have they? Where's Cynthia when we need her? I know, I know, Cynthia Littleton, man, or Jean. Um, yeah, I I don't I actually don't think I don't think I remember look kind of look at SAG strike and stuff like that. I don't think I've ever read about a DJ strike. If it hap- if it's happened, I. It, it was like for 24 seconds, probably. Yeah, I, it's, I, I think there was. Uh, yeah, you're right. I think there actually was one that lasted like literally an hour or something <laughs> like that uh, and before it was uh, resolved. It resolved. <laughs> so, so, yeah. No, it's 1987. There you go. 1987? Yeah. There you go. Jazz with I was, I was three. <laughs> <laughs> That's a flex. everyone know that. That's a flex. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll be curious to see if there is any sort of, uh, you know, how much mention of the strike there is at Cannes uh, and and if, if mm. you know, if, if there's any sort of evidence yes. there, it should be kind of interesting. Uh, yeah, I'd be, I'd be surprised if it, if it comes up any, any, any more like, you know, I mean, we would have to actively talk about it, but I, I guess we're going to we're going to see it in deals and stuff. If people start buying things, the biggest movie that's up for purchase here is May December. Todd Todd Haynes' film, so it'd be interesting to see if like that gets bought and then put into the ether for release. I mean, it's Todd Haynes; like you can't not snap that up, right? Yeah, but also if you're if you know that like a writer strike is going to last for a good long while, do you want to drop that money right now? Like. I mean, I, I I don't know. I mean, I, I I my best guess is someone's going to buy it, but it's interesting to see how that how the market's actually going to go. 
So meanwhile, back here, also uh, across the pond in the States, uh, it's Upfronts Week, uh, where, you know, back in the day, this was, you know, the, the biggest week of the year in television, where the networks unveiled their fall schedules. And it was the moment where you figured out what you were going to watch in the coming year. Of course, that's not been the same for a while now. But Nonetheless, it's still a moment in time that everyone sort of takes stock of where the industry is, where TV is. And, uh, you know, it's it's uh, you know not just about broadcast anymore, but it's about cable. It's about the streamers uh, as everyone starts adding ad platforms to their yes. uh, process, including Netflix doing their first upfront this week, although not in person as originally planned. Uh, they they pivoted to a. Uh, live stream only uh, once the WGA said they were going to pick it outside. But uh, WGA has been picketing outside the other upfront presentations. And so as a result, these presentations have been pretty star free with the exception of, you know, newscasters, sportscasters and reality stars. Uh, and you also have the the networks uh, pivoting with their fall schedules. ABC announced a schedule that is all reality, which never seen with with the exception of an hour of Abbott elementary repeats does it know something well i mean no they just it's not gonna have have shows available for the fall i mean uh, cbs on the other hand announced a schedule with the scripted shows and kind of a well we'll just have to see where it goes nbc yeah i I mean i would i I, I wonder do you think that just and that's such a a good example of of a question do you think Abbott gets an abbreviated season or do you think they just start late and power through 22 episodes like from like December until May? That's a good mm. question. That is a, a very good question. Uh, don't know. You know, most shows they'll probably do an abbreviated season. But when you have a hit like Abbott that you're you're looking toward, uh, you know, reaching syndication in the coming years. um. Maybe maybe it does keep going and it just becomes a, you know, they, they keep producing episodes into this. But then you also end up pushing into the following season. So I don't know. Again, it depends on how long this strike lasts. But and then you had uh, NBC that actually they'd been shooting shows over the past year uh, that hadn't aired. So they actually managed to put together a schedule of new shows and some returning shows where those episodes are already in the can. So that would oh. be kind of interesting. Emmy's but... 2024. <laughs> NBC's yeah, <sure>. so sorted. <laughs> NBC's back. <laughs> night Court, baby. It's all been about Night Court. And then um, Fox didn't release the schedules at all, right? It's saying you're in a row that they haven't. Yeah. yeah. Like, we'll get back to you. <laughs> TBD 911 is on ABC. Go look for it there. <laughs> right. No, it's it's interesting times. And coming out of uh you know pandemic, obviously we had several years of uncertain schedules and seasons. It's been an interesting decade so far for fall TV. And what is it? Does HBO HBO participates, right? Obviously. No, because they're not ad supported. So, oh, so uh, hmm. but Warner so, Brothers, the uh, Warner Brothers Discovery does have a session uh, because you know they do still have ad supported tiers, and they also have they still have their ad supported networks. So they they won't mention HBO in that typically. Usually they don't. No, okay. but you know it's it's a different world now. So it's it's also time to the launch of Max. 
So maybe they they could still use. I, I said that to my <laughs> wife. I said I'm leaving HBO Max and coming back to Max. It will all change by the time I return. Oh my gosh, that's insane. That's true. Yeah, I'm coming back to Max. I, I saw HBO Max for the last time in the states. Oh, that's sad. And you don't even get it over there. You can't even. No, watch well, it. I have it on my phone because I downloaded some movies so I can watch them on the plane <laughs> <laughs> and stuff. And episodes of South Park. Um, but yeah, it's. It, uh, I mean, this TV landscape. It, it's even weird to see Mike talking to me in LA during Upfronts Week because you want to be lazy and not go. I know, lazy man. I know. I'm. I'm saving. Do you, some- do, you, do, you, do you feel weird like not being there for it? It does. I do. You know, I have the FOMO. Every year I say I'm not going to go to like Comic Con. And then the second someone asks me to moderate, I'm like, I'm back. <laughs> You're <laughs> I just, waiting. I can't resist it. And mm. it is weird to to not be in New York for, for upfronts, but I don't know. I'm, I'm okay with it. Um, can we give a shout out to Emily Longaretta, who's not here today, but she definitely did watch SWAT last week after we chided <laughs> her it. for not watching SWAT? <laughs> She uh, she did it immediately. <laughs> she, it was it was like everything got pushed to the side. She said, "All right, I got you guys." She moved. I don't, I, I don't, I don't know how much she loves it, but uh, I mean, listen, Dick Wolf is is a hard man to replace in her life. So I know. Is what it I is. think I think that was like the only CBS show that she doesn't watch. I know SWAT. So like, get on that. She's blue bloods to the end of time. <laughs> um, <laughs> Also, let's give a shout out to all of us nominated uh, the L.A. Press Club uh, SoCal Ooh, Journalism boop. Awards anchors of this this very podcast. Anchors of the year. We're taking it home this year, baby. This so, is the year. FYC. We're going to have an event, an FYC event <laughs> over at your place. Can we do an FYC panel right now? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but Jazz, what did you bring to your role as Jazz on the Award Circuit podcast? <laughs> Exactly. I just sat here with my British pronunciation, HBO. HBO. But guys, we're we're like a family, you know. It's Mm. it's uh and and really this podcast, it's like another character on this Mm -hmm. podcast. (laughs) It's like that house in August Osage County. That's what it is. It's just the thing, the vessel that holds us together. Yes. As soon as you said that, I had images of like, you know, in that scene where like Meryl Streep and Julia Roberts get into that fight after dinner. Mike Schneider is definitely the Meryl Streep of this podcast. <laughs> a thousand percent. A hundred percent. He's the Meryl Streep. And I am the Julia Roberts. I don't know what that makes the rest of you. I'll be the Margot Marsendale then. That's that's a good one. There you go. And Emily and Emily can be Julianne Nicholson because she's the best of us by far. <laughs> so there you go. There we go. And uh speaking of, oh wait, speaking of Julianne Nicholson, her I the first movie I ever saw her in was Flannel Pajamas, which co-starred Justin Kirk. And I have to fight Justin Kirk now because he's too good of an actor, as proven by last week's episode, Succession. Ooh. He's a very, very evil man. It was too real. But the episode was brilliant once again. That was two more episodes left. Inducing. PTSD triggering. I was like, I was like, Jesse Armstrong is just pressing record on election night. And he just put it in TV. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, and it's coming to an end. I, how's it going to end? It's it's coming. They so were dead. Soon. They were they were dead the whole time. The whole time. <laughs> yes. 
90 minutes. That's how long that episode's going to be. Before we go, I do also want to give a shout out to Zach Levin, who I apologize is going to have to edit uh, this this roundtable this week. (laughs) And considering our recorder stopped (laughs) four times, bless you. Zach Levin for figuring out Zach how to is together. You guys need to uh, friend Zach on Facebook because he has some hilarious statuses daily. You guys miss out on really funny, funny content. I, I would do okay. that right now. And, yeah. and thank you to Zach. <laughs> and uh, thanks to everyone for listening. And uh, Clayton, how long are you uh, there? I'm here till 25th. All right. So what is that? Twenty fourth. Twenty. I. I start. Yeah. I'm back the twenty fifth. Back in the okay. states on the twenty fifth. So oh, next so we'll, Wednesday. So we'll talk to you again next Tuesday from Can. Can. Yeah. No. Yeah. It's gonna have to be. Sure. I like that can do spirit. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. After the break. The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel star, Alex Borstein. From Los Angeles, this is the Award Circuit Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And we're back. It's the Variety Award Circuit Podcast. I'm Michael Schneider. Emmy winner Alex Borstein is having a transformative year. Not only is The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel coming to an end after a five-season run on Amazon's Prime Video, but she's also released her most personal project to date, the musical comedy special Corsets and Clown Suits, which is also streaming on the platform. On Maisel, Borstein stars as Susie Meyerson, the no-nonsense manager of the titular stand-up comic played by Rachel Brosnahan. Susie. What? You're up. How are you feeling? Okay, I guess. Hey, did I say my kids can go f*** themselves? If it makes you feel any better, I don't think the little one heard you. Oh, good. So, you want to tell me what happened last night? Uh, not much. I, I was at... Carnegie Hall, there was a blizzard. I couldn't find a cab, so I just started walking. Hey, hey, you think you can get the Bennett gig back? Oh, I think that's gone. Are you sure? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. But, but maybe their second choice didn't get back to them yet. Their second choice is Ian and his show pants as we speak. Me and my stupid manifesto. Make me a headliner. No opening act for anybody. What an idiotic thing to say. What's an all idiotic? The part about being able to say what you want to say? I was smart. Maybe I don't have what it takes. Maybe I'm not as tough as I thought I was. I mean, look at me. Eight inches of snow, I've become my mother. I'm, I'm in bed, popping pills, candles everywhere. But I got crystals under my pillow. Yep, got crystals under my pillow. Three of them. No, 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 come on. Think of something happy, think of shoes. My toe, I'm gonna lose a toe. Okay, don't think of shoes, no shoes. Think of hats, you like hats? My hat. I loved that hat. Listen to me. Tomorrow, this will all be a funny bit you can use in your act. 
I'm so sorry, Susie. In this episode of the Award Circuit Podcast, Borstein reflects on her experience playing Susie and the way her characterization evolved over time, especially this season when her personal life and sexuality are more fully explored. Variety's Angelique Jackson recently met up with Borstein to talk about the end of the show, as well as the painful cancellation of her series Getting On, the relationship between Midge and Susie on Maisel, what she kept from the set, future projects, and more. They began by discussing the reaction to her deeply personal stand-up special. You know, when you put something out there, anything at all, there's that moment where you can't breathe. It's terrifying, and it's bringing a baby into the world, and... You have no idea how people are going to consume what you've created. And that's, you really have to let go of it. I think I'm pleasantly surprised and somewhat shocked that it's been a resounding positive experience. People are consuming it and really finding things in it that speak to them in different ways. And it is deeply personal. It's also, in a lot of ways, wildly fictitious. And it's it's very real and it's very raw. And there's also a lot of production, you know, the music and otherworldliness about it that pull you away from that rawness. And I'm I'm loving people's reactions. A lot of people are seeing something of their own story in it, especially women are seeing, you know, this duality I think women live with on a daily basis. They're always trying to be two people at the same time. And this seems to point to that. Well, that really seemed to be the point that you were making in this. You know, that's the title in and of itself. You explain it at the beginning of the special, the idea of how women are kind of always put into these boxes and physically and corsets having to make ourselves smaller to be more desirable. What now that you're you're finished with it, you've you've you'd already been touring with it before putting it out on Prime Video, but what has just putting this whole kind of I don't know, it's not a manifesto, it's, but putting these thoughts out there, how has it transformed the way you think about some of these ideas of perception? Well, what's funny about the show is that's one of the main things I say is this is about my journey post-divorce and dealing with perception, how I perceive the world and how I'm perceived. And I think the joke in itself is I clearly am not caring how I'm perceived. Doing the show and the touring it took to get to the point of shooting it I was able to let go of all of that. And this is just it. This is who I am. This is what I look like. This is what I sound like. And it really is, it's therapy. It was exploring how do I want to be perceived and coming to a place of, it doesn't matter. It's not up to me how I'm perceived. That is everyone else's business but mine. I can just live inside the skin and do what feels good and do what's comfortable. Live inside the skin and this new hair. And my new hair. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, someone asked me the other day, like, are you are you guys doing a live action family guy? That's what they assumed <laughs> that this was my Lois Griffin. And it's not a bad idea. Um, yeah, it's kind of fun. I really wanted to have fun and reinvent myself once again, kind of come out of Susie world post Maisel and, and yeah, have a good time with, I guess it's continuing to explore perception. Well, what is the reinvention? Even though I, I will say we should do the, the live action Family Guy. I, I think we've got to uh, make that happen. We, we've we talked about it. They talked about doing a musical, which I'd also love to do for, for, for Maisel. Um, but so far, nothing's happened with any live action Family Guy. Well, I do. Yes, I keep hearing about this Maisel musical. I feel like there's a few of you guys that would be down for this. What would a Maisel musical look like? 
I think it would look very similar to the show. The show really always has felt like a musical without songs. It's um, it's big. It's larger than life. It's theatrical. Um, and the way Amy writes and the way she directs, everything is about movement. You know, she's a dancer. That's her background. So everything is choreographed um, to the letter, you know. I think it would translate really well. I don't know what the story would be. I don't know, but I know that Susie would have to be a belter. Ooh. I mean, Susie did not get in on the trash musical on the waste management. Uh <laughs> no, I mean, you really feel like a, there's no business like show business is – I mean, that's – you know, Susie would, would eat that up. I, I, I feel like we – yes – We've done five seasons, but I think that we have to start this like five seasons in a movie, something along those lines. That's what that's kind of the trend. People keep saying, "How would you feel about a spinoff?" And I'm like, "We haven't even buried the body, and y'all want to read the will." <laughs> so we'll see, one step at a time. Well, in that, in this kind of the musical of Maisel. What did going into season five feel like? The dance of knowing that this is the final dance. That was a strange experience. I'd never experienced it. Everything I've worked on, I've been so lucky. Family Guy's 20 plus years. I was on a sketch show that continued after I left. And I, the only time I was on a show that ended, it was something called Getting On. And it was on HBO. And we didn't know. We went on hiatus and just didn't get to come back. And I thought that was the most painful breakup. But I'm not sure. I think this Maisel... I think this might have been more painful. It was hard knowing, you know, it's like going on a date with someone that you know isn't available. It's falling in love with a married person is what it felt like. And it was it was really difficult. But I think some of that emotion, at least for me, that I felt and carried throughout, I think it bled onto the screen in good ways. I think there's some of that broken heart that makes an appearance. Do you like to watch... The performance afterwards, have you been diving into what has happened on screen with Maisel, these these episodes? No, and you're not going to believe me. You're going to think this is total BS, but I have not watched Maisel. The only episodes I've seen are the pilot and the second, and that's because we went to Berlin for a world premiere, and we were stuck in the theater when they screened it, and I couldn't get out and had to. And it was... Not good for me to watch. Ever since I saw that first episode, I started changing the way I stood. I would hide my forearms and change the, my, the way I hold my – I cannot – like anything observed is changed, and that holds true for me. I had to not watch the show. Otherwise, I would screw everything up. So once our last episode drops, as the kids say, which is late May – I am going to watch the show with my now 10-year-old daughter. She was four when we started. And I'm going to watch from beginning to end with her and and have like a whole out-of-body, out-of-character experience. What do you expect that that experience is going to be like? Well, first, I think it's going to be hard to get a 10-year-old to sit through an hour-long program because <laughs> they're like, yeah. their YouTube TikTok brains are, are jelly. I think it's going to be... I think it's going to be really interesting. I think I'll have space between myself and the work now to just view it as a viewer. And I hope I just enjoy and revel in everyone's performances. And I mean, I hope I'm able to like celebrate it, you know, yeah. take it in. 
Is there anything you're particularly excited to see how it came out? Because you guys have had so many big pieces of production. Um, and also just like some of the smaller, more nuanced moments. Anything you're like, huh, I wonder what that was like. I'm interested to see the cat skills because I know it was just so much work and so intricate. And there were scenes I wasn't in that were like French farce. You know, it was like a one a one-shot and choreographed to the nth degree. I want to see that. I have it at the Coney Island. I've heard so many amazing things about. Um, I've seen bits of Miami because there was a lot of press we did to go along with that. But I, but to see it all sewn together is going to be neat. Yeah. When it comes to watching with your daughter, what are you hoping she'll take away from this series? You know what I hope everyone, but especially little girls, take away from this series is that there's myriad types of women out in the world and you don't have to fit one certain mold. And this show has how many, I mean, countless numbers of strong, well-defined three-dimensional female characters. It's not just Susie and Midge. There's Rose, you know, Midge's mother who has completely changed Mm -hmm. from season one. There's my sister Tess who becomes a force to be reckoned with on her own. There's, there's Joel's secretary. There's May, played by Stephanie Hsu. Um, my secretary, Dinah. You know, and this is 1950s. This is like, you know, an Asian American woman and an African American woman in the 50s being depicted in a really different way that you don't see and strength. And it's just endless. It's, I just hope my daughter, I hope that it's actually not shocking or interesting. I hope it's just normal for her. I hope it creates the new norm and alters the landscape a little bit. Well, I think that we can safely say that uh, Maisel has really put its stamp on television and and – we, we can say that with the awards, the critical acclaim, but also with just the value, the production value, the 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 value of the writing. Um, when you look at this experience of Maisel, what does it what does it mean to you? It I kind of can't believe I've been a part of it. It's it's been a you know we 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 launched at such a perfect moment in a way. The world was turning their heads and wanted to look at women in a different way. I think it was, it was, you had Me Too going on. There were so many things in the news and so many female voices that were emerging. And I think just having, getting to be a part of that is, it's pretty amazing. It feels like a, a, it's, you know, it's part of the feminist movement. It's really a chapter in, in feminism. And I feel I feel pretty proud to have been a part of it and that it wasn't, that wasn't the agenda. Amy Sherman Palladino didn't sit down saying, I'm going to add a chapter to uh, (laughs) the feminist handbook. It's just, she wrote from her heart and what she knows and Rachel and I and all the women on the show delivered these characters based on who we are. And it, I don't know, it was just being in the right place at the right time. Who did you see Susie as those first episodes when you read the script the first time? Wow. Susie, you know, I knew that Amy was writing Maisel before it was called Maisel. I knew she wanted to do something in that world, stand up to honor her father, and she wanted a female protagonist. And I knew that she had this manager character in mind, and she thought about a woman who existed named Sue Mangers, and 
took a lot of that feel from that. She also took a lot from Mitzi Shore, the mm-hmm. comedy store where Amy used to work. So I knew those things going into it. But for me, it was just every every woman in my family history that f- worked their asses off to be significant and to make a mark in this world. My father's mother, who was an Orthodox Jewish woman who swung chickens over her head in a kosher store. My other grandmother, who survived the Holocaust and then became a wig sewer in New York. Um, just everybody... Everybody kind of just worked themselves to the bone to to be something, to not not necessarily earn money and not necessarily shine as a success, but to be significant. And that's what I wanted to bring to Susie. That those influences are what I brought. And Amy too. I mean, Susie's so much of Amy. When you know, this is a series in which we've learned more and more and kind of peeled the onion back with Susie slowly. You know, Susie is not kind of quick to open up and and share a lot about her personal life. But season five is really where we get to know Susie even more than we ever expected. When you were going into this season, kind of knowing we're bringing this this story to a close, what were you hoping to find out? And then what was your reaction as you kind of got the scripts and found out what Amy and and Dan wanted to do um, on the way to the end? Well, we never knew what was coming. Our scripts would arrive sometimes moments before our table reads, and you're like, holy shit, really? <laughs> Susie did that? What? There's one scene in, I think it's a Miami episode. What is that, season three? I can't even remember. But where Susie all of a sudden mentions about having gone to law school. Yeah. <laughs> and you're just like, wait, what? Every day it was a surprise. And so there's peeling back, and then on an emotional level, Susie, I always relate it like, a, like an armadillo that she was just this tight ball and little by little opened up. And emotionally, it's been just as massive a journey for her as professionally. She's learned to let another human being into her life. That's the first time she's ever done it, really, Um, with Midge. We find out in episode four, there was another person she had let in. And that was just as much a surprise to me. I didn't know what's coming. People have always been like, talk about Susie, talk about her sexuality. I'm like, look, here's what I know. I haven't created this woman. And then to find out she had this massive heartbreak and and to find out why she's, you know, closed off so much, why she, you know, wears a leather jacket like armor. And it was beautiful. I loved finding it out little by little. Because if I had known... Everything at the top, I think my performances would have been different. I think I would have felt the need to be hiding something. And I think Susie just lived her life, did her thing. Um, She never thought of herself as hiding. She's guarded, guarded and careful um, and cautious, distrustful, but not hiding. Do you think that Susie, when she first saw Midge, perform that particular stand-up, do you think she not only thought this woman is incredibly funny, but I I have something in common with her as well. I know what that feels like. You know, it's interesting. It ties in a little bit with my special about perception. And Susie doesn't give a rat's ass about how she is perceived. She leaves the house every day dressed in what feels good and comfortable and how she feels strong. 
and barrels through the world and wants to be heard. And that night she sees this other woman from a total different part of town, from uptown, um, totally different package than hers, um, do the same. She sees her barrel onto that stage and not care, bear all and be incredibly vulnerable and strong all in one. And I think, yes, she saw this is special. This is something. I want to know this person. I want to be with this person. I want to represent this person. And as you said, this is, they are the great loves of each other's lives, but that doesn't come without a roller coaster. We get to see throughout this season, because of the different time jumps, you get to see, you know, Susie have to make other, um, not sacrifices for Midge, but have to make other, uh, what's the right word? Make other... So I'm thinking about the wedding. I'm thinking about the Hawaii wedding, thinking about Lenny Bruce. I'm thinking about a lot. Susie, beyond being her manager, does often have to do some of the, the hard moments, some of these things that Midge can't quite bring herself to have certain conversations. What were some of those scenes like? Yeah, it's like um, Susie became, for a period of this roller coaster relationship, the cleanup crew had to clean up these messes, these emotional messes that Midge would get herself into and stand by, watch the mistakes happen. No, she can't change her mind. No, she can't help her avoid the mistakes, but just knowing she's going to have to clean it up. And you could say, oh, it's selfish. It's because she wants to keep her in to perform. She wants to keep her career alive and well and that it's damage control. But I think it's more than that. I think it's, I think she wants to mother and father her in a way it's it's taking care of her it's mother bear and and clean up trying to fix her messes and kind of sew her her torn teddy bear back together so she can sleep at night absolutely it's because she truly loves and cares about her you know she she will take on the brunt of these very emotionally traumatic things because this is her truest friend and she knows that it has to be done but she's not going to be able to do it yeah, and I think it's a safe love. I think Susie is absolutely in love with Midget, but it's so safe because it's platonic and she has nothing at stake in terms of we're not going to break up in that same way. Um, so I think Susie surprised herself probably by by taking on that kind of mothering, fathering role with with Midge as she has. Well, there is a breakup. Um when things finally boil over, uh, when Joel goes to prison, uh, tell me a little bit about this moment in which it seems like it could be the end for this friendship. That's another moment where we read the script and I was like, holy, what? Oh, that's what happened. I mean, I knew we were moving somewhere with, with, you know, Frankie and, and, and the, the guys who are, you know, connected and me being in debt to these guys, but I didn't really think about how is that gonna how is that gonna come out of the wash? How is that gonna affect our lives and Midge's career? And that was a huge surprise to me when I read that. And that scene, shooting that, we have a bit of a row <laughs> in a temple in the eighties. <laughs> um, that was jarring. It was really jarring to shoot that because everything was out of order. We're time jumping. It felt like quantum physics. You know, it felt like a parallel universe. The same day we're shooting another scene 
that's totally different. You know, that's not that reality. And it, that was hard. It was hard to get into that space and get yourself to a point of being so angry with this other character that in the next heartbeat, in the next scene, you're going to be in love with again. That was really hard. It was difficult. But I think that's what made it, I think, hopefully enjoyable to watch is that you can feel our discomfort with with being in that down part of the roller coaster. What was your trick to that as an actor with, as you mentioned, all the different time jumps this season, having multiple times in the same episode where you're in one decade and then the next decade and prosthetics and all of the things that go into something like this? Well, the prosthetics are a nightmare. Like, I don't know how people who sign on for a film that's going to be like three months in prosthetics, I don't know how because I found it very difficult to try to act with stuff on my face. It just, I didn't know what people could see or what they couldn't. Um, and yeah, it was very jarring to jump around and to know a bite out of the future. It's like in your real life, it's, it's that paradox, right? That you, once you know the future, you're going to go back to the past and screw it up because you know too much. So it was tough. And we really relied on Amy Sherman Palladino and Dan Palladino to keep us in the right string of things to tell us in a linear way, how does this work? How does this happen? I know Rachel asked them to actually write everything out for her. She had a timeline. Um, but many times we had to be reminded of, oh, no, because this is what's going to happen in the 70s. Like, what? And so in the 80s, what? It was, it was not easy. But, but it was fun. It was a good challenge. Was there a part that you were particularly excited to tackle? Something that you were really, once you got the script, looking forward to playing with? I'll tell you that one of the episodes that is coming up tomorrow. Um, <laughs> in episode five, when I got that script, it was really discombobulating. It was jumping a lot, and it was a format we've never done before. It um, is the roast and it moves in time and it's storytelling and there are different narrators telling the story and it's all kind of depicting Susie's rise and Susie becoming Susie Meyerson and Associates. And that was, I was worried. I will say, like I read the script and did not know how am I going to do this? How am I going to keep track of this and make it work and make it believable? And, and from what I hear, um, it came out, it's really lovely and it's really interesting. And I just, my hat's off to Amy really for wanting to try something completely out of their norm and get out of that comfort zone. And it's risky. It's super risky. So I'm, I'm eager to see, I want to see it on the screen, but it'll be a while before I get to see it. If I'm starting in the end of May with season one. I'm going to tell you, it's great. And it, the reason why it's so great is because through all the various vignettes, it really allows a lot of Susie's loves to be honored and to, to be remembered and for it to be clear, you know, obviously you have like the triple crown, for example, where right. it's a lot of, what, what do you remember of this scene where you are, Susie's out on the golf course making all the deals. <laughs> What I remember most is that wardrobe was was not comfortable. Um, like the pants were real high and real tight. Um, I actually had to take a couple golf lessons to learn how to hold a golf club. And 
when we were out there, they're like, just go ahead and swing, just do whatever's going to happen, and we can always fix it in post. And lo and behold, on the second take, I knocked that ball straight out and onto the green. And it, everyone started hooting and hollering. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, I could not, you know, it's not that long ago Jews weren't even allowed on the golf courses. I had no idea I had it in me. Um, I mean, women as well. Women. <laughs> I know. I know. Um, it was, that was pretty wild. But it was, um, it was also just having to have complete trust in Dan Palladino. And I had to completely trust what he was envisioning for this episode because at the time it made very little sense to me. But but yeah, it was learning how to drive those old golf carts too where they were very persnickety. And golfing with those clubs from that era, it's not the same – what are they made of? Uh, you know, like they're made of like, I don't know, platinum or <laughs> – uranium or i don't know what aluminum they're so light now this was like a heavy aluminum yeah wooden old school it was it was not easy and it started raining we had to hold for rain a lot i do remember this day very well but it's a good memory a good challenging memory it's a, it is, as you mentioned, it's a challenging episode because then you have moments where, you know, Susie is at the bedside, um, when, when, uh, I'm, I cannot believe I can't remember his name. Um, Harry. Harry, yes. Susie is at the bedside when Harry. God, I forgot about Is, that. is passing away. She allows him to, in his final moments, think of his, her as his daughter, who he's, you know, in those final moments of someone's life, mistaking who they are. But in essence, that's also who she has become. Yeah, he is the closest thing to a parent that Susie has ever had. You know, her mother was a drunk, her father took off, and Harry Drake was really that for her. And he and he played hard. He was difficult. He was a stern um authoritarian, but she learned so much from him and he really helped her grow, grow as a person and grow her business. She couldn't have done any, any of it. It's funny. Um, Harry Drake in the episode, um, he had a set of golf clubs and the initials were on them. And that was one thing that I asked from props if I could keep, cause this is the same initials as my daughter. Mm-hmm. So in her bedroom is the golf club with HD, you know, sewn, embroidered onto it. It's it's really lovely. It's a fun memory. Absolutely. I was like, you only, just the one thing? There was nothing else? I stole the keys from Susie's neck. Her key necklace was very important to me. So I swiped that and I asked for forgiveness later. And I have a Susie hat and I have a leather jacket. So I took a little of Susie with me. Where do you keep, where do you keep Susie? I put it on every night. <laughs> I know I, <laughs> I have it. Um, I just have it in a, in a wardrobe. I've got the coat there and the hat and, and the keys are in a little box in my jewelry thing. And I, I, I told them, I told Amazon that I would take care of all of them and keep them wonderfully safe. If they ever wanted it back, if there's ever a spin off a project or anything, <laughs> I will always have them. You can trust me. Um, but it's just nice to have. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, in addition to the Emmys, of course, it's something to look at and, and remember this moment and and what this character is and wasn't met. Was there anything specific about those pieces that you are able to look back and, and it, it brings back a memory of? Well, the keys in particular, you know, I auditioned for the part 
<clears throat> the second that I got the part, I texted Amy Sherman Palladino. I said, hey, could I wear a hat like this? Like I texted a picture of someone I had been looking online at like downtown New York, 50s, what the, the look was and found a hat. I said, I really want it. And she's like, yeah, what is that? Like a Greek fisherman kind of? Mm-hmm. I said, I think, I'm not sure. She's like, yeah, I would be fine with that. And then later I said, and I really want to have keys around her neck. I want her to have a bunch of keys. And I had just seen the play Fun Home. I don't know if you know that musical. Um, a beautiful piece of work. And there's a song about this woman, a woman realizing she's a lesbian, falls in love with this woman who walks in the door, who must be a janitor because she has a ring of keys, a set of keys on her. And there was just something so beautiful about that idea. And I, I loved the idea that Susie, everything that's important to her is on that necklace. It's a key to something that meant something in her life. And so, yeah, it's I, I kind of remember that moment of getting that part and that the birth of Susie. What do you remember about the first day on set? I don't. You know, we we did a round table with the entire cast last week and everyone chimed in and I it's I guess it's like childbirth. I blocked <laughs> so much. I didn't even remember. I'm like, what was the first thing I shot? And and Amy reminded me that she believes it was me getting her out of jail. Mm. Midge has been arrested for her stand-up set for burying her breasts and I show up to get her out of jail. And that's the first thing I, I really have barely any memory. It's so strange, but I remember being feeling overwhelmed, feeling like, am I doing this right? Am I making enough choices? Cause I'm just doing what kind of comes naturally. And I hope this is going to be right. I hope it's enough for Susie. Well, it seems like you were doing something quite right. But what do you remember about these last these last episodes? Is there I, I know I know what you, the last thing you shot was, but what do you remember of this season? Is there a particular something that you'll kind of carry with you um, from this final season? I think the difference of this final season was that we knew our time was limited and knowing how precious time is. You know, if you're if you're given a diagnosis of a terminal illness, you every day you treat a little bit differently and you walk onto that set in a different way and you look around and take it all in. And I'm very happy for that, having that. And I also feel like we 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 have sat with these characters for so long. They were inside of us and we were inside of them that we were able to kind of let go with some of those questions of how would how would I do this? How would I do? You just do. You know, Amy said, can you ice skate? And I said, I I could. I did when I was little, but I never was fancy. I couldn't, can't do tricks or anything. Well, you're going to ice skate. And then I think in season one, it would have been hard to say, okay, but it's Susie ice skating. How does, you know, you have to take that extra step of how would Susie ice. And at season five, it was, she's in me. And so... I just ice skate, and that's how Susie ice skates. So, yeah, that arabesque just hits. Could you believe it? <laughs> it's amazing. I honestly can't believe I was able to do that. They had, um, they had a stunt double because they didn't know what I was going to be capable of doing. We had like one rehearsal where I tried working that out and figuring out how to do it. But if I to do it in a rehearsal is one thing, but to bring it on the day where the cameras are there, everyone's in the wardrobe, and you have ten minutes. 
it's another story. So they weren't sure if I'd be able to do it, but lo and behold, I think I did it every single take and it was really fun. I, I mean, that is the thing about this series is that while it is obviously a very profound exploration of womanhood and friendship and, and love and, and self-discovery, it's also so much fun. It you is. Know, Maisel's a hysterical series. When, what, what would you say is uh, your most fun memory of this show? Where, where did you get to play? The most. Well, I I will bring that scene up again with being at Rockefeller Center where it's closed off to the public. It's just ours and everyone is in vintage wardrobe. That just felt like magic. It felt like you were in a dream landscape or something. That was astonishing. Um, getting to go to Miami was an absolute blast. Just when you can travel with a company that becomes family, that was beyond beyond magical and these massive undertakings that Amy would take on. You know, we had this huge industrial musical this season, the trash musical that it's an entire show. They put on a mini Broadway show in an hour of television because Amy had this vision and thinks it's beautiful and wanted to, you know, pay respect to that, which was a real thing. You know, I had never seen that documentary bathtubs over broadway and and she turned me on to it which is where they got this idea and i think those are the magical moments that it's a show written by someone who has nothing but love for the art of creating and making these huge spectacles and making something visually stunning to look at and words that you i think remember she's written a lot of memorable lines do you have one that's particularly memorable for you? It is. It's from the pilot, and I may sound like a broken record, but it's Susie saying, convincing Midge to do stand-up, and saying, I don't, I don't mind being alone. I just do not want to be insignificant. Mm-hmm. And that is just, I think, how everyone in this world feels. It's not... I want to be a star. It's not, I want to be successful. I want money. I want, it's just, you want to feel significant. You want to feel like when you are gone, you have left something worthwhile behind. Well, Alex, then I ask you, do you feel, do you feel, (laughs) you, not Susie, do you feel as if you are significant? Do you feel as if you have embodied that or are on your way to it? I think the trick with it is it's it's what you have to be crawling towards every day, to be crawling towards significance. I think if you, you know, before your 60s or 70s would say, I am significant, I think maybe you're an asshole. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's fair. I think you want to constantly be crawling towards it and... That's what it's about. It's about working towards significance and treating people around you. That's probably half of it is if you leave behind a legacy of of treating people well and caring for someone around you, that's probably the most significant you're going to be. Absolutely. Um, But, you know, having a billboard with your face on it, that's pretty fun too. (laughs) It doesn't suck. Do you remember where the first (laughs) one was? Was it here in LA or where, where did you see the billboard for the first time? For Maisel? Yeah, or no, any billboard with your face on it. Okay. I'm sure there's been a few. <laughs> there's, there's the first thing I saw, which was I worked on a sketch comedy show called Mad TV. 
And they, it's, I'd never done anything before. And they said, we want to take your pictures. We're going to do it for press. We're going to do a bus wrap. We're going to wrap a bus. So cool. And I let the photographer, I saw the other people that had been on the show already for three seasons, not doing what the photographer said. They're like, be funny, be crazy. And they were just standing and being all cute. And I was like, well, she's no fun. I'm going to be funny. And let me tell you, the other people knew what they were doing. This bus <laughs> showed up and it looked like I was relieving myself on the side of a bus. I was squatting. My chin was, it was, it was horrendous. It was a good lesson. Thankfully, it was a moving bus, so it didn't stay anywhere for too long. Um, and then the second time I saw something was here in Los Angeles on, they call it the Tall Wall on Sunset Boulevard. It was for a show called Getting On. And that, I was in tears. It was beautiful. I couldn't believe it. And uh, Maisel in, I think it was 52nd or 54th Street. They have a spot where they had a couple billboards off, up, and I went there and just stood there at night by myself and took it all in. And I'm not going to lie, yesterday, I was sticking out of my minivan sunroof on Olympic and La Cienega, staring up at my billboard for corsets and clown suits. And I've, it, I was just... It's really fun. It doesn't feel real. It just feels so strange and it's so silly. It's just a large piece of paper with your picture on it. Um, but yeah, you just feel like I worked really hard and there's a giant sign that says I did. No, you worked so hard. If, if, if for folks who have not seen this special before listening to this interview, there's so many different things that you do in it between obviously the comedy, the, 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 the Ted talk of it all, the, your, your parents are in the audience. You're, you're given everything in this. There, there's so much physical comedy as well. I've been, um, signing some things that maybe I, I don't know if I should. Yes. Um, there's ASL. <laughs> when you think of just the, the breadth of what you were able to put onto the screen with that, that, um, with that special, just the range of your of your talent, truly, you know, what excited you the most about getting a chance to kind of do all the things? That exactly is what excited me about pulling everything together that I've kind of been working on my whole life, you know, like I'm singing in this thing, even though I was told so many times I'm not a singer. And I thought you were really great. <laughs> but that's like it's that's that's what I mean about the show being about perception and me just saying, well, nope, I say I'm a singer, so now I'm a singer. Um yeah, that was that was what was really beautiful about it. And the control you felt, mm -hmm. I felt, where you are you're not reading someone else's words, these are your words. You've written this, you've rewritten it, you've rewritten it. I mean, we shot I wanna say close to two hours of material, you know, and we had to pull it back to what it is. Um, but having that sense of control is really nice when you feel out of control. And many actors do. And many people in general, life happens, you get divorced, people pass away, um, illness comes, and you are so out of control. And for that time period, on that stage, I am in complete control. And what I do is what I do. There's no one else directing. There's no one else that stops me in the middle. I just go and go and go. And that's the wonderful part. The scary part is if it fails, there's no one else to point the finger at. It's, 
you have failed <laughs> on your own in front of the world. But but man, it was really fun. And the two guys in the special, Eric Mills and Salvare, what I say about them is true. I mean, they we discovered each other when I was licking my wounds in Barcelona and and they really helped put me back together again. Did they kind of give you the tits up, uh, the bit of a pep talk uh, as you were heading onto the stage? Yeah. I mean, we kind of all do it with each other. You know, we kind of stare into each other's eyes going like, I can't believe we're about to do this and they're going to film this. This is, you know, what we've been working for for a few years now. And there's a, there's a little bit of, I can't believe they're letting us do this. Um, but mostly just sheer excitement. We were just beyond thrilled to get to do it. And you can feel it, I think. You can feel it when you watch it, that we are genuinely enjoying each other's company and just soaking it in. Do you see more of this style of, of performance in your future? Do you have another special in you? Or what do you think is that next frontier that you want to do in this reinvention? You can do anything. <laughs> God, there's a couple things. Um, first, I will as to is there going to be another show? I'm I'm writing a book, and I think there's going to be a book tour that will coincide. That will it be musical? Ooh. That will include include musical pieces that coincide to the pieces in the book. It's a it's a bizarre project. Um, How have you found writing the book? Um, slow. It has been very slow, mostly because I started while we were in lockdown, um, and had all the time in the world. And then life starts up again mm -hmm. and you cannot sit for four hours and, you know, because you need to get out of the house, you have to go shop, you have to do things for your children, like feed them apparently. <laughs> um, children, <they're> so needy. <laughs> yes. They get in the way, don't they? Um, but yeah, that's, it's been hard to to find the time. And then during that time too, I've written a feature that I'm trying to get made right now. So that's, that's my bucket list. I've got these two things on it. For and I want to go to Scotland. Oh, maybe you, could that feature <laughs> potentially be set in Scotland or you just want to go for a vacation? The feature is not shot in Scotland, but Scotland does have the Fringe Festival. And that might be where, um, when this book is finished and when I put this together, that may be where we premiere it. Okay. Wouldn't that be fun? That'd be amazing. Well, on the feature, on the feature question, um, what do you, what part do you see yourself playing in this? Would you want to also direct? Are you, are you doing all of the roles, or oh, what is your? What you're is your, so nosy. You're I'm so good. The nosiest. <laughs> um, I have written it. I, I will be in it. It's a, it's pretty much a two hander, and, and I am thinking about directing it. That is coming after a very long time of speaking to directors and, and, and finding people and realizing, oh, well, this might be missing and this might be, and this might actually be the way to, to do it. I, yeah, I'm, I'm excited about that idea. I'm not, I don't want to direct a million other things. Mm -hmm. I don't know that I would want to be handed a Marvel script and go <laughs> helm, you know, be at the helm. I, I think this is just like a small, personal, intimate piece that it feels right. That being said, if there's some brilliant director that is like, I want to do this, I'd be like, yes, <laughs> let's do it. But we'll see.
Well, I would love to see you direct it just because, you know, when it's something that is so intimate and so close, sometimes that's, you know, you're the right perspective. You're the only one who can really see it. You know what scares me? What scares me the most about directing myself would be having to watch the playback and not ruin my performance. That's That's the trick of how I would have to kind of really workshop this, really, I think, get rehearsals down and... So when it got to that point, I'm just looking at it technically yeah. from camera work and, and is this reading the way I want it to read and not picking myself apart. Have you talked to a lot of like actor directors? I have talked to some yeah. and a lot of them though, never had trouble watching themselves, you know, on the set of Maisel, Rachel Brosnahan could always be like, can I see that one back? And I would walk away. I'd have to <laughs> deflect and walk away. And um, she's always been able to watch herself and she can see something and then like modify and change based on what she saw. And ah, oh, you're coming this way. Let me change that, you know? And I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to suck it up and figure it out. Right. Listen, and it'll be worth it. It'll be worth it. I hope so. Well, as we say goodbye, I do want to ask you about saying goodbye to Maisel. As, as you, as you mentioned, this is a family, and you were all together as a family on that set for those last days. You know, what do you remember about the kind of that that magic idea that Amy had of just making sure you were all able to be there together um, for those those final those final moments, if you will, minutes, I guess, technically. <laughs> Yeah, initially, maybe there was a part of us that thought she was nuts. Like, what? What? what, Really? This is going to be a massive process if we're all here for every. And she was so right. It was so. It was the Last Supper, you know. It was. It was the big family meal, getting to sit around and and say goodbye and watch each other perform. I didn't get to work a lot side by side with some of the people because our worlds didn't collide too much. Tony and I had limited amount of screen time together and, and Rose and Shirley. And so to get to kind of be in the same room and to get to watch each other work and take that in for the last, savor it, you know, for the last time was special. It was also really hard to get through. I mean, I, we all had bets going on who would break the first and it was me in rehearsal (laughs) started crying like a baby. What was the bet for? Who would cry first? What 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 did you lose? What, what was oh, the payout? Just my pride. Oh, <laughs> just just my pride. That's all. Um, yeah, it was uh, it was really hard. I because I was watching Rachel and knowing I wasn't going to see her do this anymore. Knowing I wasn't going to watch her perform or watch her work this close anymore. It was Alex watching Rachel, and it was Susie watching. Miriam, and it was like these two worlds kind of colliding. It was really – I asked Tony, I asked if for, if he would say this was accurate because he has two daughters. You know, the feeling might be like giving your daughter away at a mm. wedding is what it felt like for Susie to let go of Midge in some way, let go of Maisel, let go of – for Alex to let go of Susie in this show. Do you feel like you've – let go. I mean, you've spent. You're spending the next. I don't know. Two months talking about it. So it's kind of hard. To it is. It is. It's go. a little bit like they've. They've. You know. We, we should have put a DNR on it because um, everyone keeps paddling it. Uh, we're still breathing. It doesn't feel 
like it's completely dead yet. I think, I think after all of this and all of the interviews and all of the press and after the final episode airs, I'll feel it. And when we, in January, when we don't go back to work, mm. when there's the absence of this family and that's when I think I'll look down and notice a tiny hole in my heart. Um, right now there's so much going on and it's so busy and corsets and clown suits has been a yeah. wonderful distraction and it'll be interesting. But I know we show folk are fickle in the way that we have many great loves. Yeah. When getting on ended, I thought I would never love Again, I mean it. I thought I was done. It broke my heart and I couldn't. And then Maisel, I promised myself, don't fall in love. Don't open yourself up. Don't make it a family. And now I'm, I'm brokenhearted once again. That's Alex Borstein. Catch up on season five of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, now on Amazon Prime Video, leading to the finale on Friday, May 26th. Borstein's comedy special, Corsets and Clown Suits, is now streaming on Prime Video as well. And of course, Family Guy is everywhere, including Sunday nights on Fox. And that's it for this edition of Variety's Award Circuit Podcast. Zach Levin edited this episode, and Michael Schneider is the producer. Be sure to subscribe to the Award Circuit Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you download podcasts. Also, head on over to Variety.com and click on the Award Circuit tab to find the latest awards predictions and key races, as well as your daily fix of news, analysis, and reviews. For Jazz Tanke, Emily Longaretta, and Clayton Davis, I'm Michael Schneider, and we'll see you on the circuit. <laughs>